When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Evan Drellick is the nothing personal word of the day, and it's a Samson sit-down. And we are lucky to have right now the author of what I'm confident is the hottest book on the market. And I already read it because I got a free advanced copy. Way to go, Evan. Winning <laughs> Fixes Everything. How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Sports' Biggest Mess. It's all about the Astros and the sign-stealing scandal, but way more than that contained in these 326 pages. Evan, welcome to the show. How are you? This is kind of, uh, what's the word, meta, because I interviewed you and you're briefly in the book, and now you're interviewing me about the book that you're in. It's a little, you know, trippy. So are you going to sign? By the way, so I got sent this book by your PR guy, and yeah. I was fully expecting something, and it's, it's blank. You yeah, didn't sign so we, it to me. Well, you know, I'll make it up to you. Uh, well, we can rectify that situation. So I, I let's have my word. let's tell the audience. No, I'm going to hold you to that. So let's tell the audience a little bit about this book. And uh, I wanted to hear it in your own words because you sat on a story. You had the sign stealing scandal, and just so people realize, this is a story that was broken by you. And I'm going to say you, but you're going to say you and Ken Rosenthal. It was, it was two of us. It's, yeah. But the fact of the matter is that you had an inkling that there was something going on. I was the president of a team while this was going on. And uh, we spoke about this through the process of you doing the book, and we've spoken many other times. But when you're sitting on this type of story, I need to know, when is the moment that you sort of had a click where you said, wow, we're going to really have to do something. You touched on it in the book, but I want a little more depth in terms of the click that says, I've got something real here. I knew from the start I had something real. Um, it, it, it was not as though I, I, I keep getting asked this question, and I, and I don't think I first at first understood it. People are like, well, how did you first get tipped off to it? I think there's this assumption that like the first conversation I had about it was was like a breadcrumb. The first conversations I had about it that I talk about in the book were the basically the whole thing. It, it was, here's what was happening. Here's who was doing it. Uh, the Farquhar incident, I, I knew it all 13 months ahead of time. Um, the trouble was getting to a point where you feel comfortable printing it. And I was conservative. I, I wanted more corroboration. If I had, in, in the end, done a story then, you know, the facts would have been accurate. It, it, I had the facts. 
Um, you know, I get fired from from the outlet I was working at uh, a couple months after I find out, and I, I didn't trust them in the first place. One of the reasons the story doesn't come out right away, I didn't trust the outlet I was working for. They're a regional sports network. You know, regional sports networks. They don't do investigative stuff. That's not how they work. Um, I knew the Astros would probably attack me. They love to attack reporters, as we saw what would then be a year later with Stephanie Epstein. Um, you know, they had already tried to get me fired when I was there. I did have only unnamed sources. I put it all together and I said, you know what? I need more. Uh, and then I get fired. So I'm, I'm unemployed and I have this story in my notebook. And at that point, you're like, well, who, who's even going to believe me th that I have this here? Um, and I go to The Athletic. It, it's not something Ken and I start working on right away. And frankly, I think that's because I'm shell-shocked. You know, the, the Astros are so good. And the book kind of gets to this, right? It's, it's in the title. Like, can you believe that there would be something so bad under the surface of a team that is so effective and good? Um, and, you know, as the year progressed, later in the year, we, we pick it up and get more sourcing. And three days before publishing, um, Ken talks to Mike Fires, And, you know, that's it's fantastic to have somebody on the record. So it was, it was not a straight line. It was 13 months. Was I working on the story every day for 13 months? No. Was I torturing myself every day for 13 months? Yes. Were you worried that someone else was going to report it before you? Because in this era of you've got to be first, was it a concern that by sitting on a potsy for as long as you did, that it would cost you? Yeah, I mean, I say in the book, I worried I'd passed on the biggest story of my life. But but part of that was thinking that, well, maybe nobody will get it. Um, you know, I had very strong sourcing in Houston. I, what what In that period, as you remember, there's a lot of finger pointing, right? It's like player on other team says uh, rival team across the way. I think they're cheating, right? This, there was a ton of allegation. I was pretty confident that my sourcing on the inside was a separator, that uh, other people wouldn't have that. Um, and honestly, to date, really haven't, right? You know, Ken and I break the Red Sox story. No, but, you know, there hasn't been any other stories. My book has some reporting on the Dodgers, but it's not like with any other team, you've had uh, somebody come out and have firsthand sourcing from inside the team that was actually cheating. So, you know, it's a sliding doors question for me. If I don't get fired and go to the athletic, if I don't pair up with Ken, does the story come out when it does? Does the story come out at all? I mean, I, I think there is a non-zero chance that the story doesn't come out. Maybe years down the road it does. But, um, yeah, there's some sliding doors there. Do you recognize how lucky you are that Bud Selig wasn't the commissioner when you did this? What, what, what would he have done? I believe that not only would he have called you, I think he may have gotten on the plane and come to visit you in order to <laughs> strong-arm you to making sure you did not report it. And I say that with all due respect to Bud, who I love, but the, the fact of the matter is that this story rocked baseball in a way that surprised me. And I wanna talk about, I mean, I read the entire book since you've sent it. And uh, you're talking about teams, the Astros, and I've, I've told this to everybody, we were all doing something like this. We were all trying to find a way, not just to steal signs, but then to communicate it to both hitters and runners. And the Astros had a really effective way of doing it. And it's not because of Lunau, although he was involved, and it's not because they're smarter than anyone else because they weren't. It's they just had this system that just, it, it worked better and they had better players than most of us had. 
but I've always made it clear, and that's why uh, baseball only really criticized uh, and and sent a memo about Red Sox, Yankees, Astros. We never got a memo that talked about all the other teams who were doing it. Right. But Rob knew, everyone knew that every team was doing it. And I'm wondering when you talk about corroboration or trying to figure out, is this the biggest story you've ever sat on? Did it occur to you to get anyone from any other team to acknowledge what else was going on? Yeah, I mean, look, if you read the original story, right, Ken and I were maybe overly concerned to the with context to the point of, of look, in a very pure journalistic sense, we buried the lead, right? The lead of the story was not the Houston Astros World Series champions were cheating. It's there's a context here. And this happened, uh, you know, it, it takes a paragraph or two to get to it. And we were, we, we were very conscious of that. And actually this is an interesting story. Um, I went to a college that had a major basketball scandal. Um, uh, uh, there was a state investigation of the team, uh, cause it was a state school, uh, it was Binghamton university. And there was reporting on the time it was, it was led by the New York times. Uh, and I remember reading it, uh, and I wasn't like this big Binghamton basketball fan. You know, I, I, w I went to the school, but I wasn't like this rah-rah kid. Um, I remember reading it, and it, it really lacked context. It didn't have any explanation of like, this is the environment that exists in the NCAA. The, the, uh, you know, how do the rules uh, or the enforcement uh, do or do not uh, encourage this? You know, it, it was just... Binghamton bad. They cheated and that's that, right? With no acknowledgement of the broader system. And so I was very conscious of that going into it. And Ken, Ken was with me as well. We wanted to be fair. And that's why we kept trying to report. And that's why we got the Red Sox story done. Um, you know, I think part of the point you're making goes back to a discussion of does severity and cheating matter? What the Astros were doing at home, I think to, in the minds of most, and I, I don't know if you agree, is, is a step above anything else we know to have happened, right? Firm evidence, firsthand accounts. Yes, teams are using that base runner system. Uh, it certainly was still cheating. But I, you know, I was talking to Andy McCullough at The Athletic the other day, and he had talked to somebody in the industry who, who said to him, it, it was like the Astros broke the Geneva Convention, right? It was, you know, everybody else was doing 90, you were doing 120, 130. So let me tell you what was going on a little bit inside a clubhouse and locker rooms at the time. And your Geneva Convention analogy is really interesting, but we were actually jealous that they were going 130, not that we didn't want to go 130 ourselves. Right. And we were not the only team. Every team felt the exact same way. And there were memos sent about what to do with Apple Watches, where you could stand, where you couldn't stand. We ignored all of them. Every team ignored all of them. And so for one, one of the thing, one of the things that I'm reading the book a little differently than most of your audience because I lived it. Yeah. But your audience is going to be fascinated by understanding and reading in detail sort of the backstory, how the Astros were built, what the Astros, how they were viewed throughout the industry. We despise the Astros not because they lost 100 games and won a World Series and what they did, their good drafts, their bad drafts. We despise them because when you'd go to meetings with them, whether it was Jim Crane at owners meetings or Jeff Lunau at GM meetings, they acted as though 
they were the smartest people in the room. And it, any room they were in, no matter who was in the room, and we didn't view winning 100 games or winning a World Series as making you smart or losing 100 games as making you dumb, but they acted in a way where we were only too happy to have them go down. And right. that was unanimous feeling within baseball, which doesn't happen often. So you found yourself with the perfect foil, right? I mean, if you were doing this and you were catching someone who was well-respected in the game or someone who was well-liked in the game, I'm not sure it would have the audience that this book currently has because it was so convenient to dislike the Astros and you're giving everyone proof about it. But you did it in a way and what I want to understand is you had a story that rocked baseball, but then you decided to go deeper and spend a year of your life putting it into a book. How does that decision process go for you? Yeah, you know, I, I, into, into a couple of points you made there. Um, the Astros had annoyed Major League Baseball, right? They had, they had scandals break in both the 2018 and 2019 postseason. Um, 2018 was Kyle McLaughlin, the, the lower level employee sneaking around Cleveland and Boston's dugout, taking pictures. Uh, and that, that became kind of a dust up. And then 19 was the big one with Brandon Taubman, right? So you have the Astros culture, um, bleeding over. And, you know, I do think other teams were, were, I, we know other teams had, uh, analytics driven front offices. I think there was an extremity with what the Astros were doing and attitude in, in treatment. You know, I'm sure you can find crossover in different areas, but the, the whole composition um, I, I do think was, was relatively unique, you know, and the notion everyone wanted to do it. People I talked to, you know, inside the clubhouses on those teams were, were quite convinced that veteran contending teams were doing it. Um, you might be right that literally every team was doing it. The evidence so far that I've seen, right, and, and kind of the firsthand accounts are that it was those more experienced veteran teams, right? Like I'm trying to think in those years, were the Padres really bad? Like, like was the 30th team that was really young, um, really on the level of what the Red Sox and Yankees were doing? If you say so, you know, I'll take you your word for it. But, but are you saying that it was just players who were involved here? Because now you're sounding like Lunau. And that's well that's with the, not with the right. no well you mean with the science stealing yes so we can go into that um you know he's denied all of course all knowledge. He yes of and course. he's also not in the game anymore correct um I, I think there is a credibility question there right we, we have these emails MLB collected these emails where Tom Kochfaser the uh, director of advanced information literally is telling him in the email about the system. Luno responds to the emails more than once and then claims he, he didn't read uh, the emails, even though one of them was like literally five sentences long. Um, so yeah, there, there is a question of, uh, of uh, credibility there. Uh, and I took in a long winded, you were asking about how did I decide to do the book? Was that, was that basically? Yeah, that's where? a big decision. But I wanted to mention, we, we you said Brendan Taubman's name. People are going to read the book, but just so you have a frame of reference, that scandal is when he was in a, a champagne filled clubhouse yelling at women reporters about a player they had signed, Osuna, who had had some domestic violence issues, if not suspensions. 
and uh, the Astros went on attack, and that's a name you mentioned earlier in the show. They attacked, that was their PR plan, was to attack the female reporter, not to take seriously what happened, and and uh, it didn't work too well for the Astros. And that's a theme throughout the book, winning fixes everything. Not too much went right for them off the field, believe it or not, from a PR standpoint. They have done a lot of winning, but off the field, not so much. Sorry, go back to uh, answering that question. I just want to give reference to our listeners. No, that's good. I, I should have done that myself. Um, I had covered the team for the Houston Chronicle, Chronicle from 2013 to 2016. Uh, I was the. Fr- I'm very proud of breaking the Astros story with Ken. It, you know, if if anybody writes like a two sentence obituary about me, good chance that's what's going to be there. I am almost more proud of the fact that now nine years ago in 2014, in this period, where everyone was slobbering over analytics, what comes after Moneyball, the Astros, um, that progressive community, which. I was not uh, a Luddite, right? I wasn't somebody who didn't grow up with Moneyball. I was willing to report on questions people had about the Astros culture and what they were doing and how they were treating people. Um, I knew for a long time that there were issues there and there were other little scandals, Brady Aiken scandal, the Cardinals hacking scandal that sends a baseball employee to federal prison. I knew there was a larger story, right? It wasn't an accident. It wasn't coincidence that you have that Brandon Taubman incident where he gets fired right before the World Series starts. It wasn't a coincidence that you have A.J. Hinch, Carlos Beltran, Alex Cora, and Jeff Luno all fired, right? Three major league managers, one GM fired as a fallout of something that happened in Houston. It it wasn't all uh, happenstance. And I knew that, and I felt I was in a position having actually covered the team, having broken the scandal to write a book that probably nobody else really would have had the vantage to do. Have you had any offers to uh, buy the rights to your book yet? Offers? Uh, not yet. We're, we're, there are, hopefully, I'd love that. So uh, There's been some inquiries, but. I'm going full Reese Witherspoon here, and we want. I want to talk about optioning the rights to this. And the reason why I think that it's a, uh, it's a movie in the making, and there's no way that Brad Pitt is going to play Jeff Luno. I can tell you that right now. But all of that said, what's in this book, it's, it's intrigue. It's almost the best books that are nonfiction seem like they're fiction. And if you're not inside the industry, you're going to read this book and you're going to say, are you kidding me? Did all this really happen? And I'm here to tell you that everything in this book actually happened. So tell me, when you're putting the book together and you have a great index, and I admit that I did look when I first got the book before I read page one, I looked for my name, saw it, and went to those pages first to see whether or not I had to call my agent, whether there'd be an issue, because it wouldn't be the first time. Are there people that you wanted to get in the book who would not talk to you, either off the record or on the record? Yes, and you know, I thought about this. I knew I knew at some point, and I, and I, have, I have already been asked, like. You know, people would ask, who did you talk to? And the thing I decided on uh, was I would acknowledge that neither Jim Crane nor Jeff Luno agreed to new interviews for the book. Um, I certainly would have enjoyed uh, that. I, I think it would have. Uh, you you want as many people on the record as you can. Did get, he respond right? to you when you asked? Did Luno actually respond to you when you asked to interview him for the book? Luno did in the end give a statement uh, in regards to what what is new information in the book about 
him deleting information off his phone. You know, the, the, the letter that the commissioner he said it was sent, his wife's pictures, didn't he? Right. He, so MLB <laughs> starting its investigation. Uh, you know, this is days after our story comes out. And when there's an investigation, the league tells everybody you preserve your phones. You don't you don't touch them. Luno disobeyed and uh, erased backups from his phone. Uh, call logs were missing. And his defense to MLB was that I had photos of my wife giving birth on there. <laughs> In the letter that Rob Manfred sent privately to Luno at the bottom, this was not previously reported. Other parts of the letter were. This wasn't. I'm not sure why. Um, it says, you know, I have no way to know whether you deleted incriminating evidence, right? So Luno's saying, look, it's just photos. Nobody knows, right? Because it's gone. The information is gone. Um, so that, that was uh, one part of it. You can actually find what was there with subpoenas, but this did not rise to the level. There's no, people may not realize the Department of Investigations and MLB does not have subpoena power, uh, shockingly. They have a lot of stuff, but not subpoena power. So when you delete, just a little advice to everyone out there, when you delete, it's not actually deleting. So uh, let's be careful out there. So you didn't hear from Jeff. Well, you've got a statement. No right. crane for sure. He's bungled every PR thing he's ever gotten into. So that's the end of that. What about any specific players? Did you try to get people to talk about Mike Fires breaking the code? Because that was a thing in our clubhouse about how this went down. There was a lot of mixed feelings in the clubhouse that he spoke. So I'm interested about that. And were there any players who were sort of angry about this situation, not about the sign stealing, but also about the fact that the players got immunity? Were any, was anybody willing to talk to you about that? Yeah, I mean, look, there was a lot that was already public with that. I, I, you know, the question of the, being the nature of a whistleblower in the clubhouse, the book goes into that a bit. Um, I had 30,000 words trimmed from the book. There was a lot more that could have been written. How many pages before. is that, Evan? What is that? How many page, How many words <sighs> Close per Close to 100 probably wow. or, 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 you know, I don't know, 60, 70 something. You know, it was it was going to be in the 400s and the book in the end was uh, in the 300s. And, and, you know, probably I could have lost a few more words, right? But um, there was so much to get to there. You know, I did generally have uh, conversations with players about, um, you know, how they felt about those things. But um, th there's kind of only so much you can spend a huge amount of time on in a book, you know. What was the uh, oh my moment when you're doing interviews for this book and you're starting to put the chapters together and you're sort of watching the story unfold that you knew how it ended? Was there a, a moment where you're speaking to someone or interviewing someone and who was it where you said, oh my God, I did not know that and I cannot believe that? I didn't know how to end the book uh, for, for some time. It, it, it was when I, when I kept thinking about it, I just kept going back to the same conversation and anecdote. And it was this very regular person uh, who had devoted a ton of time to the Astros, a guy named Jay Edmiston. Um, he was the director of Florida operations. So, you know, he runs spring training, not like the actual on the field, but he's, he's the guy greasing the wheels down in Florida and making sure everything is, is running smoothly. He had started with the team as a bat boy, uh, in 1986, which was a big year for the Astros, uh, you know, climbs a chain and he saw all of his friends get fired by Jim Crane, uh, and George Postolos, who was the president when Jim Crane took over and Luno back in 2012. But he survives. You know, he's, he's kind of one of the lone survivors. And the Astros move their spring training home 
from Kissimmee in Florida near Disney to West Palm Beach. Um, that when when that transition ends, Jay helps with this. They think he's they don't need him anymore uh, after 34 years. And and Luno doesn't do it himself. This is like two months before Luno is about to be fired. Um, and you wonder what happens if maybe this is you know Luno gets fired two months earlier. Does does Jay actually get fired? So he has some underling uh, go do it. And it's this poignant quote that I want people to know how it used to be, how good it was. Uh, when I first met my wife, I told her, you have no idea how unbelievable my job is. Then when Jeff takes over, it's like, I don't like this anymore. They don't do things right. They don't take care of their people. And, you know, it's kind of stunning. After 34 years, the guy was making $80,000, right? And today he sells Ford cars and trucks in Florida. He's happy. He's got a kid. Uh, great guy. And, um, you know, I, I found that to be poignant. The, the Yeah, the Astros won the 2022 World Series. That guy still got screwed over. And a lot of people got screwed over. He didn't get a share. I'll tell you that. Right. So uh, I, I would say this. When you're, you're, you're head of spring training operations, when you're going to make a change, it's likely not going to be the GM. So I, I would criticize Jeff Luno for a lot of things. Yeah. But that one I would not. Uh, you would you would farm that out to someone below, someone who's part of your development down there in Jupiter or down there in West Palm Beach. Excuse me, I was in Jupiter. So that one I would say is normal. But some of the things that he does four years though, you know, I mean I hear you, but it's just business, right? Yeah. I mean it's it's it certainly is. It is, right? So and I didn't mean to just plug the show, but that's that's how we end our show with it's just business right. and uh, it's nothing personal. But and that what Jeff did in the beginning when he took over the team, one of the things about analytics and about the way the Astros were built is that they're not a lot of people person, a lot of people people, excuse me. And in baseball, you need people people because there's so many people involved in trying to get the people you need to do things both on and off the field that will make you a better organization. And you've read a lot since the Astros about cultures. We talked the Mavericks, the Washington Commanders. There are teams upon teams where there are culture issues. It is not uncommon to have a culture that's full of misogyny, that's full of racism, that's full of people getting fired after 34 years. But the Astros culture was a little different in that what he created was based on his insecurities. And what he created is what we felt in another organization as him thinking that coming from McKinsey and coming from a different world, that that world was always better and full of smarter people than the baseball world. And that's a conflict that you don't really see in Moneyball. You see sort of how to be better. That's the conflict in Moneyball. The conflict with the Astros was, hey, we're the smart ones here. You're the dumb ones here. So either do it our way and become smart or do it our way and you're not smart and we're gonna fire you. And that does not happen very often, Evan, at all. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. 
If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. There's a lot of ego with Jeff Luno, and you're right. You know, he he was generally not the most personable. If you got him in conversation, he could be very charming. You know, you, you uh, clearly very smart. It's not like he couldn't hold a good conversation. He, but he he was a terrible communicator. And there was a sense. One of the, this is a good point. One of the questions I kept asking people as I was reporting on the book, and maybe the question I asked more than any other was to what end you know why was jeff so uh driven to keep salaries so low um to have so much turnover you know was it so that he could be the last man standing was one theory that so that all the credit and the glory ends up going to him uh certainly scouts and other people in the organization thought that was possible there was one anecdote from people in the inner circle where one guy warns another um you know, Jeff won't stop until he he's the last guy here. And, uh, you know, his motivations, you can tie it all back to Moneyball. He reads Moneyball. Wow, there's a place for people like me in this game. I could do this too. And he wants to be the disruptor. He wants to create um, something that... that Efficiency of, would be a word that I would He wants to revolutionize use. the game. So when you look back, do you view as someone who's an insider in baseball, do you think that the Astros have revolutionized the game? In part, yes. I think I think they were, you know, like how do you separate necessarily the Astros from the Dodgers, the Rays? I mean, other teams were doing similar things, um, but they were certainly a leading uh, figure as big data baseball in, in that uh, period of time, you know, five, six, seven, eight years ago. What comes after Moneyball? Yeah, they were leaders in, in, in that. And I mean, you can argue that in a way, the sign-stealing scandal revolutionizes baseball, right? We've got Pitchcom now. We've got a whole bunch of new rules. MLB seems to be trying to pay attention to circumvention with uh, the new the new on-field rules for 23. I mean, you know, there is a very lasting mark. They were very loud. Luno wanted to be loud. He wanted media attention. He was very good at um, currying positive attention. There was a whole book written about the 2017 Astros that was such a small slice of the story um, you know, and you have writers who hitch their wagon to an executive and that happens good. more than, than people realize, Very by common. the way. Yeah. Yeah. So the word that I would use and that was used inside our organization is what we liked about them. And the only thing we liked about them is a word called discipline. Yep. And they had the discipline to have a plan, stick to a plan and never waver, right? They're not signing Edwin Jackson for $55 million in the middle of what they were doing. They were just not gonna do it. Now, some discipline comes from necessity. And I could argue that Chaim Bloom and Andrew Friedman and the people who come from the raised tree 
their level of discipline is they can't have a higher payroll because they did not have the money and they don't have the money. Therefore, they're not going to make the long-term mistakes, et cetera. And that's why the big markets wanted Friedman and wanted Bloom, Boston and, and LA I'm talking about, because the thought is bring that mentality here. We don't want to make mistakes. And by the way, they haven't been able to. The Dodgers have been the juggernaut they've been because of the payroll they have. And I love Andrew Freeman and I'm close with him. However, what Andrew Freeman is doing, it's easier to do with the money, no matter what he says. But what the Astros did, and it started with Crane and went down, and Luna was perfect as an employee for this, was this level of discipline that Jim Crane had, and this is an important part of your book. Uh, Jim Crane is not defined as owner of the Astros. Jim Crane and him being approved as an owner was difficult because of the issues he had in his other businesses. And those were significant issues within ownership meetings. But of course, as you say in the book, and one of the ways that I'm in your book is we looked past it because the price was right and we wanted to reward Drayton. That was Drayton McLean, the former owner of the Astros who had been a good soldier and wanted to get out for his reasons. And this is how that happened. So. It's so fascinating, the book. I want to say it again. Winning fixes everything. Go buy it. Go read it because you are going to be smarter and learn about something that is maybe the baseball story of the century. Is that hyperbole? I don't think so, Evan. I, you know, I don't I, I don't know how to rank it, but it's up there, right? Like Black Sox, PEDs, 51 Giants doesn't rise to that level. I mean, Oh, I no. meant the 21st century. But oh, hold on, let me go back. Let me. Yeah, so what you're saying is of all time. No, I'm saying it's I don't up know. there. How do you rank it, right? I mean, like, I think it's probably below the Black Sox for most people. You know, PED was individual cheating as opposed to team-wide cheating. It, it's, you know, there's kind of unique circumstances with this one that make it a hard comparison, I think. I don't know. I think it's outstanding. I think everyone will who reads it. I want to talk a little bit about the 2022 and then now 23 season. The Astros win the World Series. Yeah. And I went on record saying that this was a far more important win for the Astros than 17 because Jim Crane and the players, although there are only five of them who are on both teams, will wear this ring and not the 17 ring. They acknowledge deep in the soul of their heart when they look in the mirror that 17 has an asterisk or a taint to it. And so winning in 22 mattered. And what they're doing now and gearing up for 23, do you think they still have the motivation as you look at this season and they're favored, their odds on favor to repeat and no one's done it for 23 years. Do you think that uh, winning 23 is as important to them as winning in 22? Probably getting that first one is is going to be a little bit more important than than the second one I, you know those those few guys that do remain from 2017 maybe they have uh, a bit of an extra fire there because of it you know I, people have been asking me about the 22 world series does it does it fix it um and my response isn't simply well you know do you believe winning fixes everything although i think that is a fair question to ask in response it's that just because there is a title there now I don't know that uh, Jim Crane has fixed his culture issues. He might have. He might have made strides. Um, I would. The lesson of the Astros reporting, I think, is that for years you had well, they're winning, and so they're very smart. You got to get under the hood, and and the only way to answer the question about the Astros, I think, is not continuous titles. It's what is going on underneath. Have they rectified these problems? Uh, and I'm sure to some some of them have to have been rectified. Luno's gone, and a lot of that uh, group is gone. But um, 
I, in a way, I'm saying I'm reserving judgment because I just don't know enough beyond, yes, they still have a good roster and won a World Series. What do you think of the hiring of Dana Brown as GM? Very well-respected guy. You know, I, I know Astros fans get concerned. Well, he's he, are we going to keep innovating? I think it's a fair question. It, it's not his background. Uh, you know, it's a scouting background. Um, you don't have to have at your head of the organization somebody who does that, right? You don't have to be a McKinsey consultant. You can have very strong people below you, your head of R&D, your assistant GMs, on and on, who can handle that part of it. So the question becomes, what are their internal mechanisms? Do they continue to make um, as close to objective decisions as they can? Do they revert back to, I'm trusting my gut? Um, you know, the whole thing with the Astros under Sig Meidel, who was Luno's right-hand man and Luno, was they wanted the subjective information and the objective, the numbers and the scouting combined in a way. And they did it. They put it in their system. Um, everything got uh, you know, numerically assigned. And, and they tried to adhere to that. They didn't always do it, but they tried to adhere By to it. By the way, it. we all do that, Evan. I mean, I, it sounds so great when you read it in the yeah. book, but just FYI, we did it too. And sometimes we won and sometimes we lost. Sometimes we got it right. Sometimes we got it wrong. Everybody uses both. Just there's a little misnomer that some teams are all analytic or all non-analytic. We all use right. them both. And we're all trying to combine the subjective and the objective to make the best decision possible. That's one thing that in the book that I smiled at thinking that they thought that was so, it comes, I believe, in a quote from Jeff, is, which is obviously from a pre, something previous because he didn't give you anything new really for this. Um, he's trying to make it sound like that's revolutionary, right. but that's a bunch of horse hockey. That's how we all did it. My whole baseball organization did the same thing. Maybe my guys weren't as good at it, but we certainly right. tried and we certainly, that was our decision-making tree. Yeah, they, they loved, look, they, they were so loud about how smart they were, right? And there's a lot of irony to that. You know, they were trying, when you guys were, were taking the subjective and the objective, was a person making that decision at the end of the day? Or was there a way that that was getting incorporated into like an actual projection number of some sort? You know um, what I mean? No, that's a great question. So it was always a person at the end of the day making the decision. And yeah. that person was making the decision based on the input of both subjective and objective variables. Right. So they get the information, but you have to have someone accountable to make a decision. And we were not going to leave it just to the paper or just to the math equation or the analytics or the code. We wanted it to be both because I don't know how else to judge how your GM is doing or how your development people are doing. They need to be on record of what they think about a player, what they think about a potential draft pick. And, and that's how to judge how do those people do. And right. I wanted to learn how they would make their decisions. But at the end of the day, I'm judging their decisions and I want them to be their decisions. Right. Right. Their whole thing, right or wrong, was it's how you combine them. It's not just that you combine them. It's the, the supposedly objective way of combining them. Um, yeah, I don't yeah, think you'll I, get another team to agree that that's how it actually happened. I must, I, if I was in your shoes and I saw, I mean, when you're hearing the Astros talk about how smart they are, um, th this becomes a topic amongst teams. Yes, yes, it did. Yeah. Yes, it did. We spent a lot of time. I mean, we talked about, it's a copycat league. We spent hours talking about how to do things that the right organizations and the winning organizations are doing. So we'd spend time talking about how the Rays are doing what they're doing. And then we'd spend time talking about we don't want to do what, for example, we were not willing, our owner was not willing to do what the Astros did because he would not have three years of 100 losses. Right. He'd rather have seven years in a row of 90 losses than three years of 100. 
however right or wrong that is. And there's many teams who have tried what Houston has done and tried to tear it down and tank and rebuild and have not been as successful as the Astros have been in building the dynasty they've built through the inter international. And if you look at their, the way their roster is made up, it's, it's fantastic, right? So that all would be talked about, but we were very aware of their culture because all the scouts talk and all the development people talk. And the only thing is our GM didn't talk to their GM right? Only when there was business to do. But uh, on every other level, right, there's talk. And so we were aware of all these things that were going on. Heading into 2023, you touched on the rule changes. Uh, where do you stand? What is the rule change that you are most looking forward to seeing executed? I do want the games to be faster. And so I think that the clock, I'm, I'm very curious to see the clock. I'd had enough of the shift myself. I, I, I look, I've been as critical and hard on the commissioner's office. And, and I, I think my reporting has created problems for the commissioner's office as much as or more than anybody. Um, I think in this case, recognizing the product does need to be improved and trying to find a way to do it uh, is, is a worthy attempt. And, you know, if it is a disaster at the absolute worst, you, you could revert back, um, you know, nothing wagered, nothing lost. It's notable to me how, how much kind of publicity and attention they're trying to build around this. So in Florida and Arizona, the two spring training sites, they had these hours long demonstrations and presentations they, the, both of them this week discussing the rules and they made, uh, you know, MLB officials available. Chris Marinak is a big high up there. Uh, ex player named Joe Martinez. They don't do this with other topics, right? Debbie? You, you know how they operate. They're not holding, two-hour seminars on blackouts. You know, you can ask a question to the commissioner about it, right? <laughs> so they are very, um, they're, they're, being, they're trying really hard here. And so I'm actually writing this column later today. Why are they doing that? And I think it's because they, they know that there's going to be problems. I, I think they're trying to kind of mitigate as much as they can uh, ahead of time, you know, make sure that... Uh, you think they're the doing it for the public, Evan? Say again. Do you think you're, they're doing it for the public? You think they're doing they're, trying to mitigate the public's response or the players and and executives' response? All of it, right? The the players and executives through the media trickle down effect type of thing. That that's my read on it. You know, the, it's an interesting question. If you have enough pushback, would they, you know, scrap the thing in the middle of the season? Um, well, the joint competition committee agreed to it. <laughs> I'm joking. Yeah. That committee is just, it's, we did this on nothing personal. That committee is a joke. I was on the competition committee. It's run by the commissioner's office Correct. and the owners have a majority of the seats. So the other people are, are, are literally eyewash there. You know, we can talk about how great it is to have players and umpires there, but they don't have enough votes to get anything done or to stop anything from being done. And one of the yes. things in the collective bargaining agreement that has changed is how quickly certain rule changes can be adapted. There used to be rules about you have to wait a year. But I, I would say that uh, what interests me the most, and I'm, I'm curious where your head is, the reason why the game needs to be changed, it's not the length of game. We've always called it the pace of action, yeah. not the pace of play. If there is a two hour and 47 game that is boring, that's as bad as a three hour and 20 minute game that's not boring. And the way the commissioner has done it, and I know you've been hard on the commissioner, and I want to back him up in one thing. He asks the owners all the time, in small meetings and large meetings, this is your game. 
You have the votes. Do you like your game? Do you want to make changes to your game? Let us know what you want them to be, and then we will get back to you with the best way to do it. So the commissioner is really peddling what the owners want, and the owners feel it from their sponsors, from their media partners, that things had to change because the true outcome of home run, strikeout, walk, it's just people had had enough. And they got Theo involved, and these rule changes, that's what we're looking for, is will these rule changes change the way people interact with the game? And getting the players to act differently is not as big a concern as you think, because players adjust and they will adjust to these changes. But the question is, what will be the outcome for the macro baseball? Right, Uh, I agree with you. The the product has gotten more boring in a way. Tie it back to the book. I mean, it's the outgrowth of Moneyball. Moneyball leads to the analytics. Analytics show power and strikeouts are fine. So what do we get? A game that's just full of power, strikeouts, and walks. Uh, So so thanks, uh, Billy Bean, Michael Lewis, and uh, (laughs) Jeff Luno. No, No Brad Pitt or Jonah Hill? (laughs) <laughs> well, we, we can cast the uh, the Winning Fixes Everything movie afterward. Did you try getting Paul D. Podesta to talk to you? I didn't. Um, could, could have been an interesting idea, but I didn't. I'm asking because he's the only one who wouldn't give permission to be used in Moneyball. That's why they cast Jonah Hill as the Paul D. Podesta character, and right. they made it short and fat, not tall and skinny, just as a little uh right into Paul because he wouldn't cooperate. Is he still at the, at, uh, the Browns? Yeah, he moved over to football. So you're following, you're writing a column So about these rule changes. What other stories are you working on? What are you looking at as sort of the, the interesting things to watch here in 23? And I assume you're going to start with this guy in Japan named Otani. Yeah, you know, I, I'm mostly doing uh, off the field these days. I mean, this actually, I, I, I want your, your opinion on this because I'll, I'll probably be writing this for tomorrow. Um, did you see that MLB has a new economic reform committee, an owners committee? Did you catch that? Yes. Okay, what do you make of that? That's so that's what I'm planning to write about uh, after I get this column done. So there's going to be a little bit of panic. Here's Rob is worried, as he should be. The biggest problem in 94 was owner v. owner. Right, that's really what was going on is the owners were fighting and they couldn't get blocks. There was a block. The way it works, as you know, is 23 votes to pass. If you get eight votes to block, then you can stop everything from happening. Right. And what he is noticing, uh, there are more and more, uh, there's more problems with owners and it's a lot of new owners and there's not, he doesn't work like Bud did. You, you were there with Bud, Bud did it with favors. So he had, everyone had a different shit. He said, all right, you want this, I'm getting that. I I need your vote on this, but you're going to get this all-star game, right? It was a lot of that. Rob doesn't really work that way. But unfortunately, uh, owners are now beginning to dislike each other, not just personally, but the the economics of the game, right, is something that you're going to have to work through, but it's not coming till 26. They're not reopening the collective bargaining agreement, but what they are doing now, and if this is what you're referring to, they're working on the new CBA now. And that may sound early to you, but it's not. And the reason they're working on it now is they've got to come up with solutions to get to 23. Because if they had a vote on a CBA today, given what Steve Cohn's done, given what the league looks like, here's a little terrible fact. They don't have the votes. And that's a scary thing if you're the commissioner. So, So this is Steve Cohen driven, you think? There is so much Steve Cohn driven right now. I had a theory and I talked about it with some other writers. You and I didn't get a chance to talk about it. 
I believe that Carlos Correa did not sign with the Mets because the commissioner and someone in the office said, you are not permitted to sign Carlos Correa because there were enough owners who stood up and said, this is it. It's If he does this, you have a problem, not in 26. We're going to give you a problem now. And I've never heard to the contrary. I'm not an investigative reporter, so you can look. But I have a question for you as you're doing your investigation. He signed for a guarantee of $200 million from the Twins. There is a confirmed report from someone you work with that the Mets offered him 157. Right. This is a player who was going to be the difference in the Mets winning the World Series. And an owner who is willing to spend whatever it takes to win while he's got the tax benefits that he can take advantage of. And he backed away and got embarrassed and let Correa go for $44 million. And the math is, he if he had offered 201 guaranteed, he'd be a Met because he wanted to be a Met. But instead, he offered 157 and not a penny more. Can you explain that to me? Right. Looks like the kind of offer you make to show you're making an offer, but you don't really want the offer to go through. Or you're that. not allowed to win the offer. Yeah. Look, I, I in my head, the the untrusting person that I am, I, I wondered the same thing. I, I in no way have any evidence of what of what you're of what you're suggesting. Nor do I. Yes. Yeah, no, but but did the thought cross my mind that that it was a political decision at the end of the day? for the Mets to back away from Correa, I don't think that's impossible. But isn't that what you do for a living is to take things that are in your mind and to find proof? It's, you know, the book took three years. Give me another three years. Maybe I'll get you an answer. <laughs> we don't have that. Actually, that may be really good time because that's around when the new CBA is going to be negotiated. Yeah, I got to figure out whether I want to cover another CBA or not. As, as much fun as the last one was, uh, let me tell you, but We'll see. We, we spent see. a lot of time on the phone during those times, and you were uh, you were very busy. Listen, I, I've gone over by a minute, and uh, I apologize no, for that. Sorry. I said I'd get you out of here in 45. Thank you so much for your time. The name of the book is Winning Fixes Everything, How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Sports' Biggest Mess. And believe me, we were there. It was a mess, and frankly, it's still a mess. Winning Fixes Everything is available wherever you get your books. It's even available on audiobook. I listened to a little bit of it just so I could ask this question. That's not you. No, I, I thought about it. It's a, apparently a ton of work to do it. Like, it would have been a week of recording, and I was going to get yelled at anyway for the reporting in the book. I, I just didn't need to see, hey, Drellick, your, your voice sucks on Twitter. I just, you know what? I... I I was done at that point. Let somebody else do it. So I, I don't count it as reading a book by listening to a book, but that said, there are people who do, but you can read it. You can listen to it, get it. You are going to learn a lot. Evan Drellick, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks, David. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.